And joining us today is the host of Politically Insane. Josh, how are you? Good. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. So, Josh, you know, tell people about about yourself. I always, whenever I used to do these, I used to try to describe my guests, but then I realized they could probably do it better themselves. So, Josh, please tell us who you are. Uh, yeah, I'm just a 24-year-old. I live in central Ohio. Uh, first, first and foremost, I'm a Christian, so I, I do try to serve God in any in every way possible. And second of all, I love my country. I love America. And so that's, that pretty much rounds up who I am for the most part. Yeah. So, you know, I like to think you're conservative, but your, your thing is politically insane, which I think like AOC is politically insane. So, you know, first and foremost, I guess what, you know, what do you believe politically? Cause you know, not everybody who calls themselves conservative first and foremost are conservative, but they're also, you know, there's so many different types of conservatism, you know, like what, you know, what would you describe yourself as? I guess should I ask. I think I think I would probably uh, describe myself as conservative. I think that's that's fair to say. Um, you know, and politically insane is because someone like AOC would consider myself insane. Uh, so, you know, I, th- I think the uh, the unsilent majority would say that my views are pretty pretty insane. But overall, I just I kind of I think I would be libertarian if it weren't for the sense of uh, you know I, th- I think that the entire libertarian view would be almost anarchy almost. Uh, and so I just kind of, I'm a little further away from libertarianism than that. So I think I'd be right in between maybe a libertarian and Republican overall, if you wanted to kind of categorize myself that way. Yeah. I think, uh, our guest last week, Olivia Rondo considered herself a conservatarian, which I guess would probably <laughs> be right around the lines of you. So you're, you're, you're also young. I'm young. I think this is turning into a young, uh, interview show. But, you know, what really got you into politics? Uh, was it a person, something that happened? You know, what really got you into politics? So I guess growing up, I had I had always heard about politics. I'd always heard, you know, from my dad mainly. You know, he, my dad's also really my, my family. I have a lot of military uh, personnel in my family, things like that. Um, but then growing up, you know, I, I guess that didn't really get me into politics, but I'd always heard about politics. And I've also always been taught by my dad to think for myself, not to let anyone else think for me, but to hear what others have to say and just simply go off of that and try to learn for myself and and come up with my own ideas. And I think to say what really got me into politics, uh, it, it may sound cliche for a lot of conservatives, but I think Trump really got me into politics because Trump did so much to expose all that is going on in politics. And I think that's something he did for a lot of Americans. I think he got a lot of Americans out to vote the first term. I didn't really like Trump. I didn't like his, his attitude. I didn't like his personality. There's a lot about Trump that I didn't like, but by the set and by, uh, I guess before, you know, his first election uh, is what I meant. And, you know, but by the second election, I was all in for him. You know, I, I saw that he cared about the American people, the way that he didn't take money from the American people. I thought that said a lot about him. Uh, And just that, just the fact that there are people out there that do care about this country, because overall, before Trump, I didn't think that there was a single person that even cared about this country uh, the way that he did. And I think he showed that a lot in his policies, maybe not necessarily in the way he spoke, but, uh, you know, in in his policies, I think you can see that 100 percent. Yeah. So I have family throughout the entire country um, and a lot of them are, are live in rural. I mean, we have a couple of people who live in, you know, big cities in the family. We all think they're crazy. We don't invite them to. Thanksgiving because they probably would have voted for AOC. Um, but what I, what I heard throughout that entire campaign, I'm sure you probably heard something similar because you, you know, you're a little bit older than I am is that uh, tr- speaking about his rhetoric is that 
he was the first president, many people said, who spoke the way that these voters thought. Like, they were thinking exactly what he was saying. And I think that's why you saw a lot of former Democrats switch over and vote for Trump, not only in 2016, but in 2020 as well. I mean, you know, what, what, do you, what do you think of that? I mean, obviously, you know, you probably distrust the government as much as I do and as much as everybody listening. But what do you think about Trump really made him resonate and make it to where they to where somebody who lives in, you know, rural Ohio like you probably in the probably used to have a job in manufacturing or live in rural Georgia where they either farm or, you know, they uh, they they do, you know, maybe police work or something like that to where this real estate billionaire never left, uh, you know, a mansion can resonate with him. Yeah, uh, I, I think you, you hit hit the nail right on the head, really, when you when you said that, because I did used to work in manufacturing. <laughs> I used to, to work for the Honda plant here in central Ohio. I don't work there anymore, but I used to work there. And, uh, you know, just working there, seeing all that, that kind of goes on with the working class. I've always been, I've, I've been part of the working class since I was probably 13 or 14 years old, really, because uh, I've always been trying to trying to work to, to obtain my own money. And that's how I was always raised. But yeah, like, like you said, too, I think he speaks the way that I think about politics and he calls out uh, the politicians around him, which is kind of a bad move. And he, you can kind of see that clearly, clearly uh, was a bad move in many ways. But, you know, you would think that that'd be a bad move to kind of call out your colleagues. And he did it. He didn't care that it might hurt his his PR. He didn't care about any of that. Um, but he did it because all he cared about was just exposing everything in America and, and really talking about politics in a way that a lot of people can understand too. I think that was kind of the good thing about the way that he spoke because he wasn't really a very, uh, you know, etiquette speaker or anything like that. He wasn't going to be somebody that you'd invite uh, to really speak at your school or anything like that as some pro professional speaker, but he was just someone who spoke in terms that you understood and I understood. And I think that's really what kind of, uh, you know, really kind of caught my ear and something that really drew me into to understanding him a little bit better and uh, kind of really get, getting behind and supporting him as well. With MailChimp, you get a whole lot more than a URL. You get an all-in-one marketing platform to help drive sales. That means you can connect your data to make more informed, smarter decisions. And you get powerful automation tools like our customer journey builder to ensure you never miss an opportunity to turn shoppers into loyal customers. So if you're ready to integrate your marketing and boost sales, Get started today at MailChimp.com slash smart marketing. MailChimp, built for growing businesses. Here's to getting back together, to planned lunches and unplanned cookouts, to grandma's recipes and smells that take us back, to passing down plates and traditions. Here's to warm embraces and familiar faces, to your best friends becoming best friends, to scheming, dreaming, and food still steaming, Here's to laughter and love, to growing closer than ever, for all of life's get-togethers. Chinette, here's to us. Yes, I, I think you're 100, 127%, right? I'll give you 127%, like some of these voter registrations in some of these counties. <laughs> so I guess we would be pressed if we did not talk about the verdict that came out um, the day of us recording this, but a couple of days ago, for those of you listening, um, out of uh, Kenosha, Wisconsin, and Kyle Rittenhouse. I mean... Let's talk about this. I do, going back a little over a year and a couple of months ago, um, you know, what did you think originally about the case? And then, you know, a, a, as it comes on, what do you think about the verdict and everything like that? So originally back in August of 2020, when this all first came out, uh, of course, I, I saw a lot of the footage and I still didn't agree with a lot on the left. You know, I, I saw this footage and I thought uh, there's a kid 
who, you know, I don't understand why he went across state lines because that was the the wrong uh, rhetoric, the the wrong uh, uh, kind of narrative that was behind him. I I didn't understand why he went across state lines. I wasn't really sure why a 17 year old had an AR-15 on him. Um, but you know, I had seen enough to know that this kid seemed like he was protecting his life. It didn't seem like he was going there to shoot people. Uh, so I was definitely behind him in that sense. There was still a lot of questions, a lot of blurs. When we fast forward to November of 2021, when uh, I think November 1st was the first day of the pretrials and all of that, and kind of going through and seeing a lot of the, the arguments that were made, even by the prosecution, I, I saw all of this evidence kind of being laid out. And as more evidence was being laid out, the more I really saw this kid as more of a hero. Because at first I thought, man, I don't, I don't like how a lot of conservatives call him a hero. I, I, I don't, you know, he's, he's a 17 year old kid at the time that really probably shouldn't have been there. And of course, you know, whenever he first started off and, and I, I heard a lot of this, I didn't agree with it, but as more kind of gets laid out there, uh, I thought of him absolutely as a hero. And, and I got really attached to this case uh, for those who, who have ever listened to politically insane, or if you go back and listen to, to the first few episodes, uh, I, I, w- I was, I was attached to this case. I think this case was something that a lot of Second Amendment Americans, those who support the Second Amendment, should be uh, attached to because this, this says a lot about how you can protect yourself or how others are going to view, yourself, view you if you protect yourself. Uh, and so, you know, as more came out, I thought, you know, this kid was absolutely had every right to be there. Maybe he shouldn't have been there. I can agree with that. But he had every right to be there. And he had every right to protect himself the way that he did. And so uh, whenever I saw that verdict and I was really glad I had the day off of work and I was able to, to see that live. Cause I, I, I did, I get, got teary eyed. Uh, I, I was extremely happy for the kid and really for all America, because this says a lot that this, this was justice. This was justice served. And it wasn't justice in the sense that it took over a year uh, for this to come out, but it was definitely justice served that this jury was able to uh, overcome any kind of fears that they may have had coming out with the right verdict. Um, but I was, I was, I was absolutely, you know, very excited, very happy to, to see the verdict the way it was. Yeah. A hundred percent me, me as well. Um, a couple of things about the trial also that I found very interesting. Uh, I was listening to Eric Erickson, a uh, local, well, he's not even local anymore. He used to be like the morning drive. And now he's like one of the top 15 most listened to talk radio people in, uh, in America. He's based out of Georgia. And he, he was a lawyer and he brought up that, the jury didn't even know that the, the people he killed was, you know, a, des- a domestic abuser, um, was a pedophile, and because obviously it probably would have swayed the jury. I was still, you know, aghast when they said that. And then it came out that his father lived in Kenosha as well, that the defense was not allowed to bring up, but the prosecutor accidentally brought up. So that probably also, probably also caused this to be a not guilty verdict. But I remember thinking last year, you know, I remember one night I was laying in bed and scrolling on Twitter, and again, not healthy, probably should get off social media, but um, I remember watching, you know, Dallas get burned, I remember watching this video of this guy um, just getting absolutely, he's trying to protect his business, just getting absolutely beaten in Dallas, and watching him in Chicago, and New York, and Atlanta even, my home state, and all these places in Florida, Um, and I remember thinking it was almost done, and then the whole Jacob Blake thing happened, which again, the left is typically always wrong. Um, I mean, somebody just tweeted out not too long ago that Jacob Blake was 
killed by cops when he was unarmed. Well, he was not killed and he was armed. So wrong all over the board there, just as the left normally is. And I remember thinking when this happened, and again, you know, obviously people on the on the right went ahead and defended him immediately, and people on the left went ahead and defend, uh, defended um, the people who he killed immediately. Uh, nobody asked for facts, and I wish they would have. I wish America would just start asking for facts before we jump to conclusions. But I, I, I for one, am glad that he was found not guilty again. Um, I saw a post that I put actually put on Facebook um, that said that Nick Sandman and uh, Kyle Rittenhouse will be buying CNN in a couple of years um, once they get all their payment money. But, I mean, seriously, if you have a message out there, because, again, I, I didn't think he should be there. And my first thought was, you know, because at the time that this happened, I was 19. No, I had just turned 19 because it was, like, August 25th. So I just turned 19. I remember I got blasted for saying like that he shouldn't have been there. I think everyone can agree that you should not send your 17 year old kid to a riot and it's probably irresponsible, but I think that it really does move into a bigger problem. And I'll let you elaborate this on this in just a second that the left is trying to criminalize the right to self-defense, the right to own a weapon. Uh, Cause even as the judge stated, he had a legal right to have the weapon and to be there. And I mean, what do you, what do you, you know, what's your take on that? What's your take on this moving forward? I don't think that Nick Sandman's going to be the, the last, or sorry, that Kyle Rittenhouse is going to be the last person this happens to, especially now that radical left, the radical left controls the Department of Justice. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I agree with you. I think, you know, it, it wasn't a good move for him to be there. And when I think of who to blame for him being there, I think of his parents. Uh, I don't, I don't know what kind of role they played to, to allow him to be there. But at the same time, I don't think that, you know, learning more about this kid and what he was going there for, I don't think he was going to allow his parents to, to keep him from going, which again, I think that's, I think that's commendable, but you know, I, 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 him being there, probably not the best move. I really don't think a 17 year old should have been there, but at the same time, where on earth were all these 18 and older uh, and those who, who should have been there, all those maybe, maybe even bump that up to 21 and older. Where, where were all, all of them? You know, where were all these other, these other guys that should have been there putting out fires and should have been there providing any kind of assistance to those who, who may have been harmed? Trying to, trying to put a silence to a lot of this uprise and this, this uh, you know, absolute riots. You know, where were they? And, and that's, that's my main thought is, yeah, maybe he shouldn't have been there, but you know what? Who was there? Who was there to help? Right. Uh, somebody, somebody put out, uh, actually I think it was Eric Erickson. It was the, there it's a, him being there wasn't the, the problem as much as him having to be there because of, you know, the, the, the left really getting rid of, you know, cutting police force budgets, budgets and cutting all this, you know, I really think, and what, what is good. I think there's two mobs in this country. There's the radical silent majority left who are going to anytime any black person gets shot, or get shot by a cop, let alone if that cop's white or not, it's automatically all cops are bad. But I think the bigger majority that is silent is the majority in Buffalo and the majority in Minneapolis that vote to not only fund their departments to get rid of district attorneys who are soft on crime. Because I think at the end of the day, Americans do not want people to be soft on crime, especially violent crime. We can talk about whether or not you sh- you can be soft on marijuana but when it comes to violent crime, I don't think that the the American people are ready to be soft on violent crime. Yeah, yeah, I agree, hundred percent. Yeah, and it's it, it is a lot of the left was not allowing these th- this law enforcement to to enact upon stopping the all of these riots and stuff, and and that's really what it boiled down to. 
So when, yeah, whenever I call out, you know, those, those who are adults that should have been there to, to stand up for their country, uh, I'm definitely not calling out the law enforcement. I know that they weren't allowed to do their job. Uh, and so, you know, and that's, that's sad when we come to a place in America where our law enforcement's not even allowed to do what they're supposed to be there to do. Right. And one last thing before we, uh, but I, I do have a question. I want to make a statement and then we'll, we'll move on to the next topic. Um, I, I was speaking with governor Kemp a couple of months ago and he was telling me that, you know, the Atlanta police force has a no chase uh, policy. So what, what he's had to do is uh, he's had to instruct state law enforcement officers. Uh, I think he even said some game wardens um, and the Atlanta police department, because he has some say over them will, uh, will ride with, you know, a game warden or a GBI or a state patrol. And they'll be like, okay, this is where they race because the state doesn't have that no chase order. Now I do want to ask you a question before we move into the next topic. And that question is if you had to take a rough estimate of how much money you think that Kyle Rittenhouse will be making from people like Joe Biden and CNN and everybody like that, what do you think? Because I think, one, it's pretty funny that all the Democrats who donated to Joe Biden, that money will, in a sense, be given to Kyle Rittenhouse. Uh, so what, what's your guess? You thinking at least $100 million? What are you thinking? Oh, absolutely, because uh, I think you mentioned his name a minute ago, but the the kid who— Nick Sandman. Who, yeah, yeah, uh, he— he made, I think, what was it, two hundred five, two hundred fifty million, something like that. Two hundred fifty, roughly, I think. Yeah. And so, I mean, that's that's a kid that was just kind of silenced, uh, where where he shouldn't have been. So now you're talking about a kid who was put through over a year's worth of stress and constant lies about him, and then you have things like GoFundMe uh, blocking him, even you know, blocking just other people trying to support him. Uh, so all kinds of stuff, and then the president of the United States coming out and making the statements that, that he did. Uh, I, I definitely think over a hundred, you know, probably over 250 million is what I would hope for for him. Yeah. I just wish I was his lawyer. Um, yeah. So in just a moment, we're going to talk about the Julius Jones case that was happening within uh, Oklahoma before, but first, if you want to get your protein intake up and you want to become strong like me and Josh Mahler, go over to builtbar.com and use code let freedom ring. That'll get you 12% off. My favorite is the double chocolate. Now, you brought this case to my attention. I probably had heard about it, um, but I probably had heard about it from some show on the left, and they think that everybody who committed uh, something that got them the death penalty is, you know, they're automatically innocent. Um, for those of my listeners who don't know, because I think a lot of people don't know, you know, what is going on in this Julius Jones case, and if you could just break that down for us. Yeah, so uh, if I understand, so this is something I, I kind of more recently had my eyes open to only because I think there was so much controversy in the sports world. I'm, I'm a huge f- football fan mainly. Uh, and I'm a Baker Mayfield fan because I'm an Oklahoma fan. Uh, so, and just so happens that he came to Ohio, but yeah, it just so uh, happens that we beat Oklahoma in the Rose bowl. So go dogs. Yeah. 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 You can, you can brag about that. I hate to say this is, that was probably the best game in college football in the last five years. That was a great game. Yeah, you, you, yeah, I think it definitely has to get ranked up there in the top five. Um, just because, yeah, it was it was really Double crazy. Double overtime, walk-off yeah, touchdown. Game. Yeah, and, and both teams played really well, too. Uh, maybe not on both sides of the ball, but both offenses played very well. That's for sure. But, but you know, I, I hear I heard a lot about this in the sports world recently, and so I, I kind of started having my eyes open to it. And so it seems that this man was convicted of a murder, uh, what was it, over 20 years ago now? And I believe it was back in 1999. And uh, he's, he's really been trying to fight this a lot. And his name is Julius Jones. He's, he's been pleading innocent this entire time. And here recently, he's been sentenced 
to a, a, the death penalty. And so he is going to be executed. And, and this is this has been going on and people were trying to fight against this. I think there was over six million that signed a petition against him being executed. Uh, and the fact that, you know, it seems by everything I can find about the case. And again, I, I think it's kind of hard to, to really de- determine what is true and what's not. In this case, I don't think there's as much, uh, you know, there's there's definitely not as much video evidence or anything like that as there was like in the in the uh, Rittenhouse trial, but it seems that everything that's been brought to to the 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 court, it seems like this man is innocent. He's about to be killed over it. He's about to be executed. Uh, and so from everything I could find, it it did seem very interesting that it, you know this this uh, innocent man and of course the a lot of the left mainstream media is going to paint it out to be a black man being put on trial, uh, which I I think is kind of silly but yeah it, it seems that he's uh, I, I believe he just recently was told you know he, he was uh kind of given this way out that he's just going to have life and in, in, in prison instead of being executed which is good because it seems that it is still kind of murky that he's not necessarily guilty uh, and so you know I, I that's something that i think is is very big right and i did a little bit of research after um after you brought it to my attention and honestly this is one of the times when I might would agree with the left that maybe there was some race at play in the nineties in Oklahoma. I mean, the guy who uh, prosecuted him, the DA at the time, I believe it, the DA uh, was in cowboy Bob or something. And that's not the racist part about it, but like that, you know, that from everything, I mean, the guy didn't fit the description. The guy didn't, you know, one of the, the juror, the jury said something about, they hope that they hang that insert word that Atticus Finch wouldn't like it. If I said, um, and everything like that, and then also you get into the point where, tell me if I'm wrong, but some of the, there was the suspect, there was a suspect who said it was um, Julius Jones, and that suspect actually matched the description, apparently con- confessed to doing it. I mean, I don't see why he doesn't get a second trial. I don't see why there's not enough to pardon him personally. Yeah. Yeah, and you're right. And and I, I think I agree with you. It does seem that there is, some sort of race that, that plays in it. But if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, I believe the guy that, that uh, uh, his name was Christopher Jordan, uh, the guy who was the suspect that, that said that he did it and everything that said that he just led it on to, to Julius Jones because he didn't want to, you know, he thought maybe he can push it off on him. I believe that man's a black man too. And uh, so the whole, like, yeah, I think there was part race race kind of going into it back in the nineties in Oklahoma, uh, which is a very, very hard red state, and it's a southern state. So, I mean, of course, uh, there's going to be races, right? It's not southern. It's Midwestern. Uh, I mean, we barely, north we barely, we barely accept Texas. Yeah. But, yeah, so, I mean, I definitely think there is some race that goes into the tri- the, the case overall. Um, but I don't think it's necessarily, today at least, I don't think there's a whole lot of race that plays into it when the, the other man that we should be looking at and trying to figure out more about, especially if he did, in fact, uh, confess to it. Uh, yeah, I, I just don't understand. It's just kind of a crazy case when I think about it. You know, this this guy that fits the description. He, you know, he has admitted to. It. Yeah, yeah, he's confessed to it. I just I don't understand what's going on there and how this man could still be in prison and be sentenced to a life in prison and not have another trial. Right. I mean, this is the one time where maybe the maybe. Merrick Garland should quit trying to prosecute parents for going to their school boards um, yeah. and actually look look into this because 
you know, again, you know, not that I think it's, you know, a race-based thing now. I, you know, I think it, the governor is Kevin Stitt, and at least he gave him commutation. But there should be one, probably a pardon, but at least a second trial. Um, because the guy, I think the description was a you know, thin black male around the same height, but that the person who did it had at least like an inch of hair sticking out the back of his hat. And if you look at a picture from that, that Christopher guy at the time, the guy has like a little rat tail that is probably about an inch and a half outside of a hat. So again, you know, well, this gets into another thing that uh, I'll actually be talking in depth with um, another guest um, is personally, I think we should get rid of public defenders um, because mo- most states have a requirement that you have to pay so much money in order to be licensed to practice. I think in in the eyes of, you know, making sure this doesn't happen because the defense attorney in this case said that um, you know, he was inexperienced. You know, he barely cross-examined and his closing arguments were the defense rests. So I think that we should get rid of uh, public defenders. But what we should do is we should, uh, if you are barred in that state, um, basically instead of you get selected for a jury, you get selected to take this case pro bono. You have to take, I don't know, maybe three a year. Um, you get paid, obviously. Um, and, you know, obviously not what your rate would be, but you'll figure that out. But you don't have to pay the bar fees. I mean, it, I, again, I threw this on you. Um, but, I mean, what, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think you make a lot of great points. Uh, and it is kind of silly too, that this man, you know, cause he, there's so many things in the case too, that he didn't bring up and it was such compelling evidence. So where the, you know, for, for example, the prosecution that we see in the Rittenhouse trial, he brings up all this evidence. He, he brings a lot of evidence to the table, but he probably shouldn't have brought a lot of evidence to the table, you know, whereas this man and in, in this Julius Jones case, he didn't bring any of the evidence that could have been so uh, convincing uh, and, and I just, I saw a lot of that and it was kind of crazy to see that and uh, just how inexperienced he could have been. And the fact that he could even have a job as a lawyer just kind of dumbfounded me. Right. I mean, I just think, you know, the, the question becomes what uh, the question becomes, you know, I think they, they, you're guaranteed a right to adequate representation. It's like, what is adequate representation is a guy who just passed the bar exam three weeks ago going up against a person who has been prosecuting um, for 20 years. Is that adequate? I don't know. I don't think so. I know I was talking to my former district attorney who may or may not have just recently got indicted about this a while ago. Um, and she said that Georgia used to have that system. They moved to a public defender system. Um, again, I think it could be an idea worth exploring because I think that I saw some documentary that said something roughly like 97% of people uh, who come from lower income uh, end up who, who are charged end up just you know, taking a plea deal because it's like, you know, you take a plea deal, you might get 10 years, you go to trial with somebody who just found out how to tie a tie. Uh, you know, you might spend, you might, you might get sentenced to life as Julius or death, but then eventually life as Julius did. Um, that, that's just my personal thoughts on it. I think that what's going on right now is, is terrible. I mean, if you have somebody who went to, you know, a uh, top 20 law school in the country uh, prosecuting you and you had a guy who got his, law degree basically on the inside of a cereal box defending you, well, you can almost have video evidence in your favor and you're probably not going to win. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's just an unfair game too. It, it just, it doesn't make any sense to allow a newbie, you know, a rookie kind of come in, you know, it's kind of, you know, a, a battle of a rookie and a pro and uh, it, it stands out very much. So in this case, I think this case absolutely could drive home the point that you're making. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. 
And before we move into our next topic, I need you guys to go over to theconservativebriefing.com. Sign up for the largest conservative newsletter, uh, five to 10 articles a morning delivered straight to you, no bias, telling you what you need to know for that day. So I, I do want to ask you, because I got you for a few more minutes here, um, you know, with what happened a couple of weeks ago in Virginia, what's it looks like it's going to happen moving forward into next year. My question A is, you know, what do you think the elections next year are going to show? But also not only what are those going to show, but what do you really see the future of, you know, the Republican Party, the conservative movement uh, in America? What, what, how do you see that going? Um, after what happened in Virginia, I have high hopes because before this, um, and myself included, and I know for sure my dad, when I talked to him and uh, other family members, other friends, they're all very, very uh, kind of weary of, of going into the voting booth after what happened because they don't trust the, pro- the voting process. And what we see in Virginia is they added a lot more uh, conservative poll watchers, which was huge. And not only that, but then I think we also kind of see a layout of how Republicans can win, how conservatives can win in elections. And that is not to try to attack the other, not to try to uh, which maybe maybe attacking in the right way is maybe the right way to say that. But attack the idea is not the person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, not attacking the person so much, but kind of diving in. And another big thing that I think Yunkin really won on was attacking the schools and, and attacking and helping Americans see what's happening to their children. And starting off with the children, I think there's nobody in America, even on the left, that doesn't care about their child and doesn't want the best for their child. And, you know, I've, I've known some people that are real, real dirtbags, but they care for their child like crazy. And they have become great parents because of that, because of how much they love their child. So I think if you, if you were to attack the schooling and understand, help others understand, help the voters understand what they need, what's going on with their children and how they want to help their children and not destroy their children. I I think that's a huge way for us to win. And I think uh, kind of looking forward, I think that can be a very good sign as long as we can try to help others uh, especially help voters to have security and, and understanding uh, and just kind of how we go about the fight. Yeah, you hit on, you hit on a lot of topics there. Um, you know, I think that your last point being made about schools are, can kind of be made broadly to say that, you know, um, Americans, I think, still in large are center-right. Again, I don't think California and New York are, but most places are. And what I mean by that is they want they want liberty, they want freedom, they want the ability to make the choice. They want stuff like school choice, school vouchers um, to be the norm. And I think that you also had another point is if Republicans can do in the next cycle before the elections happen, can really find a way to uh, get rid of, you know, I don't know if Ohio has it, but Georgia has the Dominion voting machines. And again, I've said from day one that I talk about politics for a living. I don't do software. I don't know if they're hackable. They probably are not by me, but I do know that I believe I, I was reading there's a clause in the contract with Georgia and Dominion that says something like if uh, a substantial amount of people, you know, distrust the system, that's, that's, you can get out based on that. Right. Um, So I think that's very, very important because, you know, regardless of what happened in 2020, again, nobody knows. We all think we know what happened. Who knows? Because we can't prove it because there was no paper trail. I think that it's really important to ensure that people feel their, their votes are being heard because, if you think January 6th was bad, when do you think people truly weren't heard and that, you know, we're just putting in people and we, we turn into a banana republic? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
So, okay, so we, we you think we're going to win. Obviously, I do too. Uh, what do you see the future of the, the GOP? You, you think we go back to the neoconservatism of the Bushes, or do you think we stay in the populist conservatism as the Trumps? You know, where do you see that happening? Just seeing some of the guys that are that are kind of rising up in politics. Uh, personally, I, I, I'm i still yet to find someone that I like more than Ron DeSantis. I think there's a few others that are kind of rising up in the ranks. But when we when we see guys like him, uh, I, I have a hope that that I see the conservative movement sticking with the MAGA movement. Uh, and, and that's not to hold on to Trump. I think that can hurt us. And I think that kind of shows, uh, I, I think it shows that it can help us by letting go of Trump the way that we see Glenn Youngkin win, because he really didn't have a whole lot of connections with Trump other than the fact that Trump endorsed him. And, uh, you know, I, I think whenever we see that and realize that, you know, Trump, Trump had his, his, his moment and he helped America greatly. And especially with the MAGA movement, the greatest way that Trump helped us was giving us that MAGA movement, making America great again. And that's not just Trump. It's, it's other guys as well. And I think Ron DeSantis is the biggest one for me. Um, but yeah, I, I think I see a lot of that coming out and, uh, and hopefully we see a lot more conservatives stand up in the same way that I think Trump and uh, DeSantis both have. Uh, and I think we're starting to see that a lot more. I think we're starting to see a lot more people kind of getting irritated with the old way that the conservatives used to fight. I think we're starting to be more aggressive. I think you're, I think you're hundred percent right. And I think it hits on another point is that if you, in a state like Georgia, Florida, Ohio, a state like that, yeah, Trump will do amazingly. in. you know, Trump will win South Carolina, Trump will win North Carolina, places like this. But then you get into a place like Virginia that hadn't voted red since 2009. And I think this is what I've been trying to push is that what I have, if Glenn Youngkin was in, let's just say the 2018 Republican primary in Georgia, he wouldn't. He would have got two percent, because he's not a Georgia conservative. But mm-hmm. in a place like Virginia that is uber blue, he 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 won, right? And I think that you look at that. You look at uh, people, and even in New York City, just as recently as about ten years ago, there were there was a Republican mayor, maybe fifteen. Um, so I think that it's about the Republicans understanding that what it takes to win in Washington is not what it takes to win in Florida, and what it takes to win in California is not what it takes to win in Maine. Because you have a New Hampshire Senate seat up, right? You, that where, you know, maybe the former or the former governor, Chris Sununu, who's a Republican, announced he wasn't running, but Chris Sununu can win in New Hampshire. Trump, maybe he can't win in New Hampshire or somebody like him. So it takes that. And what I think that I see the future of the Republican Party personally is I see it make America great again policies without the rhetoric. Because one thing DeSantis, why he's probably a shoe in for the 2024 a presidential lock, assuming Trump doesn't run, is because he has the policies, but him being a prosecutor, a federal prosecutor, one of the youngest actually, I think, in history, he has the ability to win, and he knows how to form an argument and to get his opponents to say exactly what he wants to, and he doesn't bow down to the left, which a lot of people want, but he does it in a way that makes the left look stupid, not make him seem like a bad person, because it's really hard to tell, you know, you can't, nobody's calling Ron DeSantis racist. You know, they're just saying that, oh, he's letting Publix give out the vaccines because the Publix family donated to him. It's like, or because there's a Publix in every other corner in Florida. So that, that could be it. Yeah. And, and another thing too, is kind of going on to his attorney background. He's a very good speaker. Uh, that's something like we mentioned before, Trump just wasn't, wasn't necessarily the best speaker. He's got the same hand uh, movements though. Yeah. Same. He does. He does. I noticed that a lot. Uh, maybe that's just part of the MAGA movement is we just have to start, you know, yeah. 
you, you. <laughs> but uh, and a- another thing too is like like you were mentioning, he has a good image in the public eye. He has a good family. He's got children that you know, and one one wife, <laughs> and he doesn't have any kind of scandals behind his his background. I think that's that's huge. I like the guy so much because he he sticks it to the left without going overboard the way the Trump might have in the past. Uh, and and I, I like I like what you said too. I think as long as we kind of hold on to to the MAGA movement, the MAGA policies, without maybe the rhetoric behind it. I think that's absolutely true. And I think that's what we see in Glenn Youngkin and even Ron DeSantis. Right. And then the question becomes, who would he pick as his vice president? Um, I don't know. I like Josh Halley out of Missouri. Um, there's a lot of good people you could choose. Um, now, we, we have a few more minutes left before people will lose uh, their, you know, they'll, they'll lose. The, for, I don't know why they're listening to us, but they'll lose the right to listen to us. They won't want to listen to us anymore. Uh, attention span. So, you know, just kind of tell us, you know, where people can find you, where they can find your show. I think your show is great, but where they can find your show um, and everything like that. Yeah, you can pretty much find my show anywhere on most uh, most of any uh, podcast platforms. Uh, you can also go to politicallyinsane.us. That's my website where I've got really all of the information there, sponsors, everything. So, uh, and even show notes and stuff like that to kind of show the sources where I'm getting my information. And uh, uh, as far as social media, I'm on Facebook and Twitter both. I think I'm engaged more on Twitter than I am Facebook for the most part, but I try to keep on keeping engaged with both of them. But uh, yeah, that's pretty much where to find me. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Josh. Yeah, thank you. Glenn Fittick's Riches 25 campaign aims to challenge the historically unitary and largely misinterpreted vision of wealth and what it means to live a life of riches that is commonly displayed in culture. Riches 25 breaks from the single malt scotch whiskey norm and helps redefine what it means to be rich. The launch of the Glenn Fittick Riches 25 is a curation of 25 individuals that challenge traditional notions of wealth and express an alternate idea of what it means to live a life of riches. For me, it's about fulfilling work and flexibility in my time and nobody breathing down my neck except for you you, Jen. And when there's too much breathing, I reach for my Glenfiddich 23. I want it to be old enough to have its own scotch if it wants to. Skillfully crafted, enjoy responsibly. Glenfiddich 2021, imported by William Grant & Sons, Inc., New York, New York.